This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. 5pm in London, good evening, welcome. You are listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Quick whip through the price action just to set you up, just to set you up with what you need to know. The Nasdaq is now down by a full 1% again. The tech selling continues stateside. The S&P only down by two tenths of 1%. The reason we're starting to see these tech sell-offs on a daily basis, yields are creeping higher. 167.40 is now where we're trading on a US 10-year. Here in Europe, the FTSE 100 fairly flat to the close, only up by two tenths of 1%. On the continent, the auto sector really driving the market. The CAC Huron's up by eight tenths of 1%. Stellantis doing great work there in terms of the heavy lifting. Uh, On the DAX, it was the auto sector as well helping out. Uh, That market up by seven tenths of 1%, Alex. Yeah, the difference I find, though, in terms of the sell-off in the bond market today is that it's more in the front end than the back end. So you're getting a bear uh, flattener in the market rather than a bear steepener. So I have to wonder kind of how that also kind of reshapes how uh, investors are rotating in the equity market. But it's by far, the value trade continues to outperform. But we've been here before, whether it's go by Europe or it's go by value and energy stocks. Is this time different? I seem to have heard that kind of a phrase before. It never really turns out to be uh, ne- never turns out to be a- a- an accurate predictor of of what is going to come next. Some point it will be, but it's really hard to judge. Um, let's talk about the headlines that you need to know about. Then we're going to come back and talk more about Omicron and get a handle on what is happening here. Because as we focus on the bond market, maybe we're taking our eye off the ball there. Um, here with the headlines and a happy new year to him is Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Seems like it has been ages. Here's what's going on: COVID nineteen afflicted one in 10 people in London by the end of 2021, according to estimates by the Office for National Statistics. That is the highest infection rate of any part of the UK, where Omicron is now the dominant variant. Infections increased everywhere across the country, reaching 3.7 million in total. Hong Kong is banning flights from eight countries, including the UK, for two weeks from January 8th in a drastic tightening of rules as it rushes to plug holes that have been that have seen the highly infectious Omicron COVID-19 variant break through the city's defenses. The bans will last until January 20th. And uh, Boris Johnson says the UK can weather a record wave of COVID-19 sweeping the country without tighter restrictions, even as he warns the National Health Service is under growing strain. And finally, Rio de Janeiro has cancelled its world-renowned Carnival Street parades for the second straight year as a new wave of infection spreads through the Brazilian city. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie, it's great to have you back on the show. Happy New Year, as I say. Thank you very much. Um, I want to take you back to the to the penultimate story that Charlie was talking about there and Boris Johnson's uh, update on what is happening here in the UK with relation to Omicron a little earlier today, delivered in the House of Commons. The Prime Minister, it seems, firmly sticking with Plan B. The lockdowns are not cost-free. They impose a devastating toll on our physical and mental well-being, on our businesses, jobs and livelihoods, and worst of all, on the life chances of our children. So this government does not believe we need to shut down our country again. Instead, we are taking a balanced approach, 
using the protection of the boosters and the Plan B measures to reduce the spread of the virus, while acting to strengthen our NHS, protect critical national services and keep our supply chains open. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, speaking in the House of Commons a little bit earlier on. Is the UK plotting the right course here? It does seem as if Omicron may be starting to peak, certainly here in the capital, maybe less so elsewhere. Uh, But nevertheless, the attitude seems to be we are going to ride our way through this. We are not seeing the pickup in hospitalisations that we've seen in previous waves, as a result of which we can take not a more relaxed attitude. We're certainly still being careful and people do seem to be kind of taking um, their own decisions when it comes to how to manage Omicron, uh, maybe better this time round than last time around but this does seem to be uh, a more pragmatic approach that's being applied by Boris Johnson is it the right one well Bloomberg's Sam Fazelli has always got uh, an eye to what is happening he joins us now Sam what do you make of what the UK is doing sticking with this less lockdown approach than we're seeing elsewhere on the continent Hi, Guy. Um, Well, I think that the UK is making the right decision here. The case counts in the country are so high that, um, you know, you would have expected to see a massive problem with hospitalizations, which, of course, is not manifesting. You do have the issue, Guy, of obviously people who work in that sector and other sectors testing positive and therefore having to uh, self-isolate and you have a, a situation where the supply of healthcare care is, 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 is damaged. Mm. But if, if they're seeing data that suggests that we're peaking and we've managed hospitalizations, I think these are the right decisions to be making. And other countries should think about this very, very seriously. So to that point, we were talking on the, uh, on the show earlier with a professor and, and he was saying that Omicron could actually be the final big wave. Like, COVID could be with us for like 20 years. But but in terms of the big wave, this could be it. And I wonder, do you share that assessment? And what kind of vaccination rate, booster rate, something do we need to see to kind of make that a reality? Yeah, Alex, I'm afraid, um, I, I don't know who you were speaking to, but, but given what we've seen with this virus, I don't want to underestimate anything that could happen again. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if anyone can viably say that it's going to be the last wave. Now, we do know that we've had variants that are transmissible, like Delta, etc., which are so-called serologically different. The way that they induce an immune response is different to what we're seeing with, say, Omicron and then also with Beta. So it's possible that now we've had the, the gamut of variants that we've kind of covered with vaccination or prior infection. But but I don't really want to call this the end of, of waves um, uh, until we actually go through a six-month, nine-month, 12-month period without seeing one. I don't think anyone has data to prove that. But do we need more boosters to help? I, I think with three shots, we're, we're pretty well set, unless you are highly susceptible, over 60 yeah. or, or, or weaker immune response. So... It was Paul Hunter, uh, Professor Paul Hunter at the University of East Anglia that we were talking to. Um, On that note about boosters, the Israelis seem to get some quite positive data off a fourth shot. What do you make of that, Sam? Yeah, but uh, Guy, every time you give people a shot, they'll have a rise in immune response, which will therefore give them that shield against an infection for a while, and then it will drop again. Um, Unless I think the fourth shot really needs to come, once Israel, which has been a testbed for a lot of these things, proves that you actually need 
this fourth shot to give you and that, that it gives you a longer term immunity. Otherwise, you're going to have to be asking people to come and have a shot every six months, which is okay if you're over 60 and it's a specific group. But for the broad public, that's a big ask. Do you think that we're going to be able to stay in school, stay at work after the next couple of weeks? Like, do you think that we're going to be able to do this? I mean, if you look at what the UK is doing, if these case counts start coming down, I think they'll, re- they'll, they'll kind of lighten up the plan B. Um, and, and people do need to get on with their lives. Businesses need to get revitalized. And, and we all need to interact with other people, which is what humanity is all about. We've done everything we, we've needed to do, Alex. It's time, unless there is se- severity to the disease it causes, which is currently not the case. I think we need to, I hope to start seeing some of that happening, at least in the UK soon, and then other countries that are following behind. Sam, stick around. We need to carry on the conversation. That was so poetic. Um, that was so, like, Frenchly poetic, wasn't it? Yeah. It's <laughs> all we're all meant to do. We have to be connected as humans. It's very, it's very poetic. Yes. Yeah. I- ironically, the French are probably some of the most locked down in, in Europe at the moment. Also, <laughs> you have some of the strictest yeah, really guidelines in terms of accessing the country to go and do things like well ski down a mountain which is what i was meant to be doing this week that's because you're just France. bitter that's that's i that's, am that's a the little i don't blame you i'd be bitter too off. anyway we're going to take a short break sam fazelli will be back we're going to carry on this conversation this is bloomberg this is the cable with guy johnson and alex Steele on bloomberg radio Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Alex Steele with Guy Johnson. We are back together yet again. Uh, Sam Pazelli of Bloomberg Intelligence also still with us. Um, Sam, we were talking before about how Boris Johnson's looking at the rapid lateral flow tests versus the, the PCRs when it comes to traveling, etc. Um, we're thinking about the same kind of thing here in the U.S., like using maybe that instead of PCR to test to come back to work. It hasn't been formally advised by the CDC, but they kind of recommend that you get that lateral flow test. So my question is, how good are these lateral flow tests? Yes, so Alex, that's a really good question. There has been some questions about whether the lateral flow tests are as good for Omicron. I think part of the issue is that people think need to think about how they're actually doing it. You need to take a good sample of the fluids in your nasal cavity and your throat. And certainly throat seems to be one saliva that that definitely works for Omicron. So if people do it properly... Well, let me just pause you right there. We don't do that in the U.S. We don't do the throat Uh, testing. In fact, the entire team was grossed out earlier this week when I said that it it has been standard from the get-go over here to put a swab down your throat and then stick it up your nose. Absolutely. Utterly grossed out. I mean, but, but Guy, the way, and Alex, the way I think about it is if you've got to put something up your nose... I'm sorry, I'm going to gross everybody out again. It's better if it's moist. So why not do your swab of your throat and then put it up your nose, right? It will slide easier. So, but let's just, let's just step back. <laughs> it's also the here. same it's thing, it's, your no, nose no. and your throat. I wasn't I, grossed out by mixing it. I, was just, I just no. hate like, that strep test thing. But, my, but like, yeah. so are we all doing it wrong in the U.S.? Like, do we all have COVID I, and don't know? I know of quite a lot of people who, and this is anec data, as we call it in this world, rather than actual <laughs> data, and that, that suggests, that say, that, oh, they didn't test positive on the nose, they did it in the throat and it was positive. So the point is we want to catch people while they're infectious. And what do we do? We speak. And where does that come out of? Our mm-hmm. mouths. So if we have virus in there, we want to know. And honestly, the way I tell my kids, too, is 
you need, he needs to make a gag and he needs to bring the tears to your eyes. If that, you've done that, you've done it properly. Cool. <laughs> so I'm going I'm to make sure my entire team in in New York are, are well of their, aware of this, including Alex Steele, um, and make sure that it's being carried out properly. I look forward to giving my daughter that. Yeah, that I have to say. Actually, my children have adapted to it fairly fairly well. Um, Sam, in terms of our understanding, though, the the, the UK has today said that that in terms of returning to work. If you are, you don't need the confirmatory PCR test. Is that the right way to go in terms of just our understanding? Is is the lateral flow good enough to tell me whether or not I am contagious now? And is actually the PCR the wrong test to take me back to work? Because because you can have the virus in your nasal cavity, your upper respiratory tract for quite some time. Guy, the proponents of lateral flow tests, who are some serious scientists, uh, Michael Mina being one of the most vocal, um, have been saying this for ages. And I think we've talked about this too. Lateral flow, when it's positive, tells you you have the most probability of infecting somebody else because you have plenty of virus in your nasal cavity or your throat. PCR looks for bits of a gene. You know that we can test for genes in dead DNA or samples from, an, from a dinosaur, right? So yep. if PCR can pick that up, PCR can pick up any remnant and it also depends how far, far you push it. It's a chain reaction. You keep pushing it this cycle times, you would find something probably. So it's always been the right thing to do, to run by lateral flow test. Mm. Those who focus on PCR are just looking at the wrong thing. Okay, so I have like 30 seconds left. So are the actual tests good? U.S. just does it all wrong? The tests, I think, have always been good if done correctly. Yeah, Same as a mask. Do it all wrong. We're messing you wear up. your mask properly, and if you've got a good mask you're much better protected than a uh, toilet paper mask. This is getting me very frustrated. Um, And I also am looking forward to telling my parents how to do it in their throat as well. This all sounds really positive. Uh, Sam Zilli, Bloomberg Intelligence, always a pleasure. Good to catch up with you. Thank you very much. And then there's the problem here about actually getting them. Is it still easy to get tests where you are, Guy? You could get there have been some shortages, but generally, yeah, there is I we have a pretty decent stack at home. Yeah. It's non existent here right now. Yeah, that's a problem. Testing mm. I think is gonna be kind of the way out of all of this. It certainly seems that way. This is Bloomberg. This is the cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. 518 in the city of London. Let's talk about what's happened on financial markets today. European equities higher, driven by the auto sector. Names like Renault up 5.3%, Stellantis up by 4%, Daimler up by 4%, the tire maker Nokia up by 3%, BMW up by 2%. Um, the serendipity of the fact that this has all happened on a day when we've seen a fantastic big take published on the Bloomberg terminal uh, by Craig Trudell and his team um, really kind of lines up very nicely. This is a sector that may be on a charge this year. Are we going to see a closing of the gap between the names like Tesla and the names like Volkswagen, Toyota. These are the companies, these old world ICE, internal combustion engine companies that are sort of transitioning to becoming EV companies with huge amounts of backing that are really going to potentially 
drive the auto sector forward, drive this EV, EV transition forward. You've also seen today news that Stellantis uh, is teaming up with Amazon. Now, Amazon has been teamed up with Rivian recently. That stock has been driven sharply higher by its relationship with Amazon. Does Stellantis get the same halo effect? This is the question that we're really going to have to answer in 2022. Do the names like Tesla come down or do the names like Renault, Stellantis, Daimler come up? to meet these kinds of companies. Well, let's talk to Craig now about the big take uh, and what he took away from it. Craig, nice to speak with you again. Look, here is, we've basically got two car sectors. We've got the car sectors that include, the sector that includes Rivian, uh, Rivian, uh, Tesla, etc. And then we've got the old school car sector, the Renaults, the Stellantis, the Daimlers, mainly out of Europe. Ford is kind of starting to bridge the gap. Talk to me about what this piece kind of brings us uh, and how we are going to see the car sector evolving this year. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're, we're suddenly starting to talk about GM and Ford as maybe being $100 billion companies, which is hard to believe because they, you know, for years have been uh, kind of stubbornly stuck uh, well below that, uh, despite the fact that, that Tesla, you know, w- was on, you know, such an ascent, uh, especially, uh, you know, just last year becoming the first a trillion-dollar auto company. Uh, I, I think one of the interesting things, uh, just just you know, as we close the year, was you know that that we saw something out of Volkswagen that, that we've seen for some time. You know, year after year, really, under Herbert Diess, uh, who, who who came in after the diesel emissions uh, scandal, they've set huge budgets for electric vehicles. We've started to see that you know come to fruition with a lot of uh, EVs you know coming to market from that company. I think with with Toyota, you had a company that was was kind of reluctant to go fully electric. They had a, a real dominant position in hybrids. They didn't necessarily need to go fully electric from a compliance standpoint. But you saw some some pressure from environmental groups, from uh, from investors, uh, really wanting to see Toyota take uh, EVs seriously. And lo and behold, uh, in, in December, Akio Toyota stages this event where, you know, I, I covered this company for a few years in, in Tokyo, and you did not necessarily uh, get a whole lot of looks at uh, future products. This was kind of, a, kind of an unprecedented event where, you know, he, he appeared in front of, I think it was 17 fully electric vehicles uh, uh, behind him. They're, they're really going to make a big push uh, over the coming years. And these are two companies that know scale, that, that have the ability uh, to make an awful lot of cars you know, they they sold roughly ten or eleven cars uh, a piece last year for every one that Tesla did. So, so the idea that these companies are pushing full bore is definitely something uh, you know to take uh, you know close uh, take a close look at if 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 you're betting on Tesla. Okay, so if I'm an investor, what kind of investor buys Tesla stock versus what kind of investor is going to go buy Volkswagen or Ford or GM stock, like? Do do they want and need different things, and does that sort of help the trajectory? I I think what's what's interesting to me uh, that that I've at least observed uh, recently is I, I feel like the whole auto industry is sort of it seems to be increasingly viewed through the prism of you know are you are you going electric and if and how quickly and and so I I think the idea that we've seen a company that is fully electric get to a trillion dollar valuation has sort of you know led to some of these incumbents who have put forth credible plans to to really push into EVs you know it it's sort of you know overlooked whether or not these are going to be profitable out out of out of uh, at, at the jump uh, it's even you know to some degree being overlooked you know just how much 
much this is really going to be disruptive to these companies. They're going to have to do a lot of restructuring uh, of, you know, plants that are reliant on combustion engines or, or actually making engines and transmissions. Uh, but, but, you know, sort of regardless, we're seeing, you know, significant responses to these companies putting forth uh, plants, uh, you know, to invest an awful lot of money and the idea that, uh, you know, they're going to scale up uh, to sort of take the fight to Musk. How will Musk respond? I, I think he's going nowhere, right? I mean, he's got two plans coming online this year. At, at least that's the plan. The, the, the plan out here in, in Germany really has, has been uh, much slower than he would like. Uh, it's still kind of hung up by a regulatory process that is sort of sh- shows no signs of easing. I think we'll see uh, the plan in Austin, Texas uh, get going. Uh, you know, the Model Y, you know, more production of that uh, coming online will, will be you know, great, uh, great news for investors in Tesla. Uh, but in terms of, of, you know, product, I mean, you know, he, he's really made this big bet on uh, a different type of battery technology that he's had trouble sort of bringing up to scale. And to what degree that, you know, potentially pushes back the, the introduction of the Cybertruck even further uh, and sort of, you know, prevents him from being able to, to scale up as much he, as he would like, that's really going to be something to watch in, in the next uh, year or two. Uh, yeah, and you have to think, like, is there going to be room for everybody? Like, if at some point everyone's going to need an electric vehicle and there's going to be lots of different types, like, don't we need the Volkswagens and the Teslas? Like, it's not going to be a zero-sum game at the end of the day, really. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of, of companies, and we saw this with the, you know, sort of SPAC boom and bust. There are a lot of companies that came forward uh, and, and sort of tried to imitate Tesla. And, and mm-hmm. you know, you look at a company like Nikola that, you know, did so to a degree uh, that, you know, the, the feds took notice and, and didn't like what they saw. Uh, but you, you do have a, a lot of, of new entrants coming online. The, their chances going up against some of these incumbents, you know, may, yeah. may be fairly slim. Um, All right, I leave you now. Craig, thanks very much. Craig Trudell of Bloomberg. Also, I'm out of here. I'm going to go do the 1 o'clock show, so tune in to Bloomberg Television for that. But I leave you in the capable hands of Guy Johnson. (laughs) I will be continuing in just a moment. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You are listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson. Alex Steele has departed to return to Bloomberg Television, uh, where you'll be able to find her at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Let me update you on the price action. Um, Europe closing actually fairly positive today. The FTSE 100, though, only up by two-tenths of 1%. The car companies really helping out the Cancurans and the DAX. But over in the States, the tech sell-off it continues. Uh, the S&P is flat right now, uh, 47.88, but the Nasdaq down by a full 1%, nine-tenths, maybe ten-tenths of 1%. We're down by 152 points. Um, so what we're seeing is actually front-end yields coming up today. You're also seeing longer-end yields coming up too, uh, but we are seeing a bear flattening. I, yields are going higher, prices are coming down, but the front end's moving more than the uh, the belly of the curve right now stateside so that's the markets let's get you some headlines here's charlie hi thank you very much guy johnson thank you very much indeed and here's what's going on the government says covid19 testing rules in england will be temporarily relaxed from january 11th a move that will free up capacity as new cases remain at records the health security agency says people who test positive using rapid test kits will no longer need to take so-called pcr tests to confirm the result covid19 has afflicted 
afflicted one in 10 people in London by the end of 2021. That according to estimates by the Office for National Statistics, that is the highest infection rate of any part of the UK, where Omicron is now the dominant variant. Infections increased everywhere across the country, reaching over 3.7 million in total. Today, the UK reported 194,000 more COVID cases along with 334 deaths. Hong Kong is banning flights from eight countries, including the UK, for two weeks from January 8th in a drastic tightening of rules there. And Greenland has introduced new virus restrictions after the Arctic island of 56,000 people had a record 198 cases in one day. Latest from the news desk, Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Um, Interesting to pick up on some of the points that Charlie was raising, actually, there. What you're getting uh, is a is a sign that maybe we're getting a peak here in Europe, certainly in the UK, um, maybe over in the United States as well, or at least we are getting close to it. But elsewhere, particularly in Asia, uh, there is concern that that may be still quite somewhere away. And we're seeing the latest restrictions being brought in in Hong Kong, uh, which is going to affect flights from the UK, it's going to affect flights from the United States. What does that tell us about the trajectory that we're on, particularly when it comes to Asia versus Europe and the United States, when it comes to emerging markets versus developed markets? Well, there is but one person to ask that question too. Damien Sassauer, he joins us from Bloomberg Intelligence. Damien, always great to get your take on what is happening here. How Do you think that Omicron is once again going to be a kind of, as previous variants have, have will we'll end up being quite a big divider of the world into the haves and the haves nots. Well, I think it already has, Guy. And by the way, Happy New Year to you. Um, look, it's nice going to be tan, very... by the way. I saw you on television. <laughs> Clearly, Florida was excellent. <laughs> yes. No, you know, I I strive for uh, for the perfect tan. I, com- I, I kind of deviate between the 15 SPV and the 30. I'm looking for a 22.5 SPV guy. No, I'm just right. kidding. I mean, look, what it comes down to is, Ian Bremmer said it, you know, for China to maintain its zero COVID policy, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult to achieve. But look, they're going to have to go down that path anyway. She appears very committed to it. And I think that's going to be, uh, that's going to result in more supply bottlenecks going forward. And it's going to result in much of what we've seen in 2021. So I don't think it's by any means over. And, you know, you just had uh, Sam Vizelli, my colleague, on. And, you know, there's more to come. You know, we can't predict, you know, what sort of variants are coming next. And look, it's going to be very, very challenging for emerging markets to contend with this environment. And Asia's leading the way. I mean, Asia is just, um, you know, if you just look at the inflationary impulse across the whole of the world, it really hasn't hit Asia the way it has the U.S. and Europe and many of the other markets. And what that means for me is that, you know, they have a little bit more space to implement more stringent policies. So that's where we are. In terms of what 2022 is going to look like versus 2021, is it just a continuation or are there going to be differences this year? Well, I think it's a year or two halves, Guy. You know, I mean, certainly in the outset of this year, I mean, well, I mean, look, we're seeing much of what we saw last year, right? Value outperforming, low vol equities outperforming, the tech sell-off, et cetera. But, you know, I think it is going to be, you know, inflation remaining elevated for the first half of this year. But that's going to give way to growth concerns in the second half when inflation starts to come over. And we're going to really see who has it and who doesn't, who can really maintain growth um, and, and who can't. And, you know, I think the markets are already kind of pointing in that direction. They're looking ahead. If you look at some of the curves in those economies that have tightened the most, I'm thinking Russia, I'm thinking the Czech Republic, the curves are already inverted. So that gives us a little sense of what we might expect here in the U.S. and in other places where we're beginning to sniff around, you know, the end of quant easing and perhaps even seeing some rate hikes in the oncoming year. 
In terms of what the setup is, I'm really curious from a societal point of view what your view is. I'm looking at what's happening in Kazakhstan at the moment. Mm-hmm. What we have is is high energy prices there causing significant social disruption. Um, elsewhere, we we are we're starting to see the impact of high food prices. Combine those two things together. That's a pretty toxic combination. It's going to be easier for that combination to be managed in developed markets. What do you think it's going to look like in emerging markets, particularly from a societal point of view? Yeah, no, I mean, Kazakhstan is something, you know. But look, I think inflation, for the most part, if you just look at where the markets are pricing it in for the whole of 2022, it's transitory. I mean, 16 of 20 emerging markets are actually going to see year-over-year CPI fall by the end of next year, you know. So, you know, inflation's obviously running hot in places like Turkey, 36% year-over-year, Brazil, India, you name it. You know, Czech, Russia, Hungary. But, you know, inflation has thus far been fastest in the Eastern European and Latin America regions. I think you're going to see that sort of come off a bit. And, you know, we do expect acceleration to begin in the second quarter and become more firmly entrenched as we uh, as we get into the latter half of the year. The dollar? Yeah, no, that is it, right? We are calling for 14 of 22 emerging markets currencies to depreciate in the whole of 2022. The only, call it six currencies that we see potential for their currencies to appreciate are, again, the Czech Republic, the Russian ruble, simply because they were early on. Also, the Israeli shekel, the Andean region, Chile, Colombia, just because their currencies have gotten beaten up so badly post some of these election results, and the Indian, uh, the Indian rupee. So, uh, so that's what we're looking at here. What, what is priced into Russia in terms of geopolitical tension? It's interesting. You know, Russia is off. I mean, it's funny. If you look at the, <laughs> it's funny that I'm on the cable here. It's the Brits. It's Brazil, Russia, Indonesia, and Turkey. The <laughs> Brits. Those are the four currencies that are the big losers so far this year. You know, as we know, Russia had a great year last year. Well, a, a much better than uh, average year. Let's call it that. But, you know, the Brazilian real with an election year coming up. I mean, Turkey with all that's going on there. You know, yeah, those currencies, you know, it makes sense that they're going to continue to weaken here. What's really interesting is Indonesia. Indonesia, the rupiah, you know, they have not raised rates yet. You know, inflation seems very under control there. But, you know, rest assured, you know, growth is is something that's going to give way to rising inflation. And so, you know, we do expect the BOI to start hiking rates pretty aggressively in the new year. I mean, maybe not so aggressively, but that should yeah. hopefully give some support to the currency. What happens if you if Ukraine is invaded? Yeah, we talked about it. I don't think an invasion or an incursion is really in the cards. I think, Guy, as we discussed previously, it's about, you know, perhaps a formal annexation of the Donbass. But, you know, just shifting back to Kazakhstan, what makes it different than Ukraine? I mean, CDS, five-year CDS in Ukraine is something on the order of 650 basis points. Kazakhstan's investment grade rated. CDS are only 65 basis points. So they're likely to rise pretty sharply in the coming days, call it weeks, if uh, some of this insurgency, if some of these protests continue. Damien, always a pleasure. Nice tan. You can't see it on the radio, but let me assure everybody out there uh, that that Damien had a very, very nice, Relaxing. comfortable Christmas. Damien Sasser, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Uh, we're going to hear much more from Damien as we work our way through this year. I guarantee you that. Um, talking of travel, Glenn Fogel, Booking Holdings president and CEO, spoke to Alex and I a little bit earlier on. We'll get his take on the return to normality in the travel sector. Does that come this year? This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening, good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Um, we have seen a shift in the UK's attitude towards testing uh, when it comes to travel. You no longer have to have a PCR test pre-departure. You no longer have to have a PCR test uh, after you've arrived back in the UK. Uh, a welcome break, I can assure you, uh, for travellers. What does the travel outlook now look like going into 2022? Does Omicron fade quickly? Well, Alex and I caught up with Glenn Fogel. He is the CEO of Bookings. This is what he had to say. I think everybody just stares at the South African numbers all the time because they seem to have gone in first. They seem to have peaked. The numbers are going down there rather sharply. So we're all hoping to see when do things peak in Europe? When do they peak in the States? And then start going down. I think the market reflects the future. And I continue to say this. Demand for travel is something that you cannot suppress. The demand will be there. It really is a question of, is it healthy? Are you healthy to travel? Are you allowed to travel? When restrictions go down, people start traveling. So I'm hopeful for the future. Hey, Glenn, it's Alex. Uh, great to talk to you about this. Um, do you notice, what trend do you notice? Like, are people just booking out irregardless of what's happening with COVID? Or do you get the sense that it's going to be more, you know, wave-like? Like, are, are we going to see sort of mass bookings in sort of spring and summer and then tailing off in the winter and then it just keeps going along like that? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And you look back to the past and you see how people reacted in the past. And one thing that I could always see is when a country gave up its restrictions on travel, people immediately started to travel right away. So we see those boosts when it is uh, when one's allowed to travel. In terms of, though, when you have a declining rate of infections, it's more gradual. As people feel safer, they start traveling. More we've seen that, too. Look, anything that we can do to make it safer to travel and make it easier to travel is going to help promote travel. And that's why we're just hoping so much that people would continue to go get those vaccines that's the thing that's going to most move the dial in terms of making travel come back. One of the things that I'm certainly hearing anecdotally from people's experiences when they do travel is that they are experiencing staff shortages. Is that, how big a problem is this in the industry right now? Um, demand is, is definitely there if people can travel. My question is, is the supply there? We've obviously seen the shortages uh, of staffing when it comes to US airlines over the holiday periods. Uh, hotels are experiencing shortages as well as a result of Omicron. How much of an impediment is this going to be in terms of the recovery that we're going to see? It's something that we are all experiencing, I agree. We've seen it, we, we've heard about it, we read the headlines, but it's really not as big a deal as the headlines would say. For example, we mentioned North America, flights being canceled because there aren't enough pilots or crew to staff up those planes. That's right, but in terms of the total number of planes that are being canceled, it's a relatively small amount of planes when you look at the entire network. Similarly, hotels, I was at a hotel uh, during the holiday season last month, and that hotel, unfortunately, its staffing got cut in half, literally in half, as people came down with the virus and had to then isolate. But nobody said, well, I'm leaving the hotel. Yeah, service is a little bit longer in the dining area, but people, people are okay with that. People want to travel, they're going to travel, and there will be sufficient supply to be able to make it happen. Uh, how much of that with the worker stuff has to do with them getting COVID, therefore they can't go to work, uh, versus sort of uh, the attrition that we've seen within the job market and the labor churn? Because that's going to have a different, longer-lasting effect. 
Yeah, absolutely. Once transitory, relatively quickly. And uh, when I speak about that, those were infections. People tested uh, positive and they had to then leave the hotel and go isolate somewhere else. And then there is the issue of the structural changes. People, are they going to take the jobs that they used to take in the hospitality industry? And that certainly is something that all of our supplier partners are thinking, how are they going to deal with it? What can they automate? What can they do differently? Yep. So particularly because they still need to maintain a higher level of cleanliness. And, and, and that's something that is a problem for them. Uh, that was Glenn Fogel, the Booking Holdings president and CEO, talking to Alex and I a little bit earlier on. As I say, uh, news today uh, that some of the testing requirements about travelling in and out of the UK uh, started to get a little bit easier today. We're going to be using lateral flows rather than PCRs. Lower cost, bit of a quicker answer as well in terms of the results. Up next, we're going to point you in the direction of 2pm Eastern Time, the Fed Minutes. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable, 5.48 in London. So we are counting you down to 2 p.m. Eastern time over in the United States, 7 p.m. over here in the UK. That is where and when we are going to see the release uh, of the latest Fed Minutes. What are we going to learn how useful an indicator is this going to be in terms of the type of policy we're going to see coming out of the Fed, how quickly it's going to happen, and what kind of sequence we should be looking at uh, in terms of the various levers that the Fed may or may not be pulling over the next few months. There is both one person to ask. He is, of course, Bloomberg's Mike McKee. He joins me in the studio over in New York. Mike, what are you looking for? I think, Guy, what we're going to have to do with these minutes is infer from what they say something about what the Fed may do. We know they're talking about raising interest rates, the possibility of doing that. We heard that from Jay Powell, and we expect them to do something this year. Uh, just under three moves is what the Fed had suggested, but uh, we don't know when. And so any kind of clues as to how bad they think inflation is going to be in the short run and when they might have to move is the first thing people will look for. And the second is Powell said they discussed shrinking the balance sheet. How do they do that and when do they do that? Those are two important questions. Uh, and so we'll be looking for where the discussion went. No decisions were made, but maybe we can infer something from how many people endorsed one option or another. What do you think's priced in terms of the market right now for these minutes? Uh, I think the the probably the thing that would most affect the markets would be something on the shrinking of the balance sheet. Didn't affect uh, the equity markets the last time they did it, but uh, we did see short-term money markets seize up at uh, the uh, sort of two years into it. I was going to say the end of it, but that forced the end of it, and Jay Powell had to backtrack, and they stopped raising rates and stopped shrinking the balance sheet. Uh, now we have the Fed repo facility that should take some of that risk out of the market. But if you're going to look at anything, you look at the price uh, for the short term, if, if there's enough information in the minutes for anybody to do anything. Do, do we understand what the taper is fully going to look like? Um, have, have we been provided with information in terms of what happens with treasury purchases and what happens with mortgage purchases and duration and how it's actually all going to fit together? Do we understand yet the fully kind of the full details of the component parts of this? Well, the taper we do. They've given us the numbers on that, and it basically uh, ratchets down by fifteen billion a month, uh, now thirty, and it ends up 
at the end of March with the Fed buying no more new securities, not adding yep. to the balance sheet. The question is, what do they do when they start letting the balance sheet fall? Uh, right now, they just reinvest maturing securities, the profits from maturing securities back into similar securities. Do they change the uh, duration mix? Do they uh, start uh, letting mortgages run off? Uh, a lot of different questions about the way you do things that could affect individual markets. And that's what uh, people on those trading desks are going to be most interested in. In terms of the narrative that I've been hearing since New Year, it seems that Team Transitory it is kind of regathering a little bit of momentum. Is the market already kind of ahead of the Fed in anticipating that actually inflation will start to fall for a variety of reasons, including the base effects, and as a result of which maybe the Fed faces scepticism in its ability to actually deliver significant numbers of rate hikes, certainly the three that has been talked about? You're going to go back and forth on that. I mean, markets always overreact one way or another and then sort of pull back. It appears that they've basically priced in the idea of at least a couple of moves. Uh, in the futures markets, we've priced in three moves. But if we start to see the economic data change, then uh, the the markets will obviously change where they go. Uh, we'll get an interesting clue on Friday from the U.S. Labor Department's uh, payrolls report for December. The expectation of economists is that we're going to see a drop in annualized uh, average hourly earnings. And if that's the case, maybe it makes some people start to question the idea of a uh, wage price spiral. In terms of the data that we're getting, uh, the ADP today on the labor market, the labor market data very strong. Um, it, it's not a kind of one for one translation into what we should expect with the payroll number Friday, but it was a super strong number. Would, would you expect over the next day or so to see maybe the kind of the, the 400 plus that we've got priced in currently for payrolls, maybe being pushed a little bit higher on the back of that ADP data? I think we could see that once people put together their final models, you'll see uh, some changes. One important indicator will come tomorrow with the ISM Services Index, and we'll see what their um, employment sub-index suggests. Manufacturing, it, uh, the ISM Manufacturing Index suggested that hiring strengthened a bit. And if we get the same in the Services Index, uh, there were 669,000 people hired at service industry jobs, according to ADP. If anything like that is reflected in the ISM number for services, then we would definitely see people move higher in their estimates. In terms of kind of what's expected on the other side of the uh, of the ledger, Mike, when it comes to the fiscal fiscal side, are we going to be in an environment where we do see both tightening at the same time? There's been some suggestion today. I think it was a Washington Post article that maybe there's going to be additional aid as a result of of Omicron. How does that change the calculation? Uh, my answer to that would be the old Saturday Night Live line of uh, "Not going to happen." Wouldn't be prudent. Uh, <laughs> they can't get another round of aid through. They might be able to insert something into a revised Build Back Better bill if they bring another one to the floor for some specific industries that didn't get a lot of help the last time. But right now, it would be very politically difficult. If you think that the help that we've given the economy so far on the fiscal side is creating inflation, you're not going to be voting for more unless there's a real problem. And I'm no epidemiologist, but uh, everything I read from them suggests that the Omicron wave is very strong, but also likely to be short-lived. Uh, and I guess that's your experience in the UK as well. And if that's the case, then we come out of it maybe without a need to do a whole lot.
Yeah, as you say, uh, maybe additional aid would be inflation. It was just an interesting trial balloon that I thought was uh, worth paying attention to. Mike, we look forward to the coverage as that number comes out in kind of circa an hour's time. Sorry, as that as that information comes out, the Fed minutes uh, in around an hour's time. Certainly looking forward to your coverage there. Bloomberg's Mike McKee. That wraps things up for us. As I say, equity markets stateside under a little bit of pressure. The Nasdaq currently down by 1.35%. This is Bloomberg. 